So I was talking to somebody this week, um, and this was, uh, I, I said, this is a, a prime example of a section of scripture that I would never choose to preach on unless it was a part of a series. This is just one of those sections that as I, I look at it, I, I begin to wonder, what, what am I, what am I going to really be saying in this section of scripture? Uh, Tim Keller, Tim Keller, uh, pastor at, well, I guess he's pastor emeritus at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in, in New York, uh, said that he has never heard this passage read at a wedding. Uh, and he has never seen anybody cross-stitch their favorite verse from this passage. It's just one of those kind of sections. But as I, as I looked over this, this uh, piece of scripture, I've realized that this section, this passage, has a very important message for each and every one of us. And I'm glad that I've had the opportunity to wrestle through it this week. So just as a little bit of background... How many of you have, could say that most of your life that you remember, you have grown up within the context of a Christian family, a Christian church? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you would say that most of your life you have not grown up in a Christian family or a Christian? All right. So this morning, this message is absolutely for all parties. It's going to have different applications for those of you who are, man, I've been in the church all my life. Some of us who have been in the church our entire lives have been sold some, some dangerous theology, a dangerous understanding of what it means to be in Christ. And if we don't get rid of it, it is going to bring us back. We're not going to have be set free as God has intended us. Those of you who are new and have been kind of just recently growing up in the faith, this has some huge implications about what it truly means to be accepted by God. Here's the problem that is in this passage. Some people were arguing that in order to be accepted by God, you needed Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus something else. So let's uh, read together Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from 
those who seem to be influential, what they, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for though he had worked through, uh, through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through, through me for mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word, Lord. You may be seated. So if you remember uh, the past couple weeks, Paul had been running headfirst into a problem in the church of Galatia. In this, in this section of Galatia, Paul had planted a church. It was prospering. It was growing. There were probably multiple churches in the, the, the region of Galatia in that section and uh, in southern Turkey. And as it was growing, Paul had, had gone off to plant other churches. But some had come in and just said, hey, Paul has, has been uh, selling you short. What you need is Jesus. Absolutely, the gospel. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Man, he is the way, the truth, and the life. But you also need to do something else. In order to be accepted by God, you need to put your faith in Jesus and what he has done for you. Yes and amen. But you also need to fill in the blank. And in this case, they said you needed to be circumcised according to the Old Testament Jewish laws. In Acts, we read the description of, of, of the issue, the case. Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Jesus plus something else. Acts 15.5 But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to keep, order them to keep the law of Moses. Just, just notice the common ground. At first glance, it doesn't sound all that serious. You know, hey, we, we have traditions. We have things that we are, are doing. They, they absolutely believed it was essential to respond in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ. They would agree with Paul and, and the others that the gospel is of great importance. It is ultimate. They would probably agree with a lot of the formulations of the gospel that we've already talked about. So it would be easy to kind of look at this and just say, yeah, you know, it's really not that big an idea. It's just kind of part of their traditions. It's part of the things they do. Do There's no need to create a fuss. There's a lot of common ground here. We have common ground. 
On top of that, the church was growing. Churches were springing up like wildfire all over the Roman Empire. The the last thing you need to do when you've got momentum is to interrupt things with a great big theological debate. Right? Man, that just kind of throws water on the fire, quenches the spirit. Now we're talking theology. Man, let's just keep on going. But notice in this passage, it was a huge deal for Paul. Huge. Paul says that the idea that you need Jesus plus something else in order to be accepted by God is actually a very serious issue that threatens the very freedom of the church. He uses strong language. Look at verse 2. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed to be influential, set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. Paul had been ministering for 14 years at this point. That's quite, quite, quite a, a run. That's longer than I've been here at Monsieur Day. And he's, he's saying that what's at stake threatens to invalidate absolutely everything he had been working for for the past 14 years. We get this wrong. Everything that I have been doing has been thrown out. That's a long career of gospel work that Paul is just saying, I'm, it, it invalidates everything. It's not like Paul thinks that he could have gotten the gospel wrong. He's already told us that he got the gospel directly from the source, Jesus on the Damascus road. So he's not worried that he has got it wrong, but he knows that if the church splinters into different groups and if the Jerusalem uh, apostles send out an edict saying that Paul's gospel was untrue, it would invalidate a lot of ministry. It would do a great deal of damage to the church. Not because the Jerusalem leaders disagreed with him, but because it was possible that they could cave into pressure and make the wrong call. Paul also says that adding something to Jesus in order to be accepted by God is something that takes away our freedom. And it actually robs us of the truth of the gospel. I've grown up in a culture, and maybe some of you have too, who have grown up in the church. It's, it's Jesus plus good behavior makes you acceptable by God. Jesus plus Sunday attendance makes you accepted by God. Jesus plus serving faithfully without any complaining in the church makes you accepted by God. It robs us of the truth and the power of the gospel. In fact, Paul says in verses 4 and 5 about these, these false brothers who secretly came in they came in to slip, they came in to kind of figure out, spy out their freedom that this church was now enjoying. And what did they do? Why were they doing it? 
so that they might bring us into slavery. So what's at stake here of getting the gospel right? What's at stake is our freedom and truth. You don't get any more basic than that. Paul is saying that if you get this wrong, three things will happen. A great deal of faithful and true and fruitful ministry to real live people is going to be undone. Secondly, we're we're going to lose our freedom that Christ has purchased for us and we are going to be reverted back into slavery. Fruitful ministry, back into slavery. And we are going to exchange ultimately the truth for a lie. So this is a big deal. There's a lot at stake. And this is why this is such an important issue Discussion for us to have as well, even though most of us wouldn't have recognized it as such a big deal. And when we started looking at it, you're kind of going, okay, Paul, I get it. I, I don't think I would have chosen to talk about circumcision and the importance of circumcision or not circumcision. It's really not that big of a deal. Let's not spend our time on this. But if we, my friends, if we, any of us, add something to Jesus in order to be accepted by God, Ministry is going to be undone. On top of that, we will be finding ourselves back into slavery. And we are going to exchange the truth of God for a lie. We're tempted, every one of us is tempted to believe that that we need Jesus plus something else to be accepted by God. And this, this damages the ministry of the church the way that we communicate to uh, lost and broken people. Listen, believe in Jesus, get your life together, look clean, dress nice, attend regularly, and you know what? You're going to be accepted by God. It's garbage. And this can sound very academic, but Paul gives us two examples about how this all plays out. And the first and most obvious example is Paul is a smart teacher. He brings an example, a living and breathing example. And his name is Titus. Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. (laughs) I went went up because of a revelation and said before them, though privately, Uh, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Paul shows a lot of wisdom here. It's one thing to kind of discuss in a boardroom or in a classroom or in a missional community these, these abstract theological issues. It's a whole nother thing to show how they apply to real, live, breathing people. So Paul brings in Titus so that everyone knows that we are actually talking about people here. 
So whether when, when you're debating whether you need Jesus plus something else, it's not a, just a matter that only applies to armchair theologians. It's not just for those people who write books about theology. We're talking about something that is going to affect a man named Titus. In fact, it's an issue that affects each and every person that is here today. Titus was one of Paul's greatest co-workers. He played a major role role in the church of Corinth. Paul later writes to him and calls calls him my true child in a common faith. Man, those are strong, loving words. Paul brings Titus with him as a case study, a test case. Titus has trusted Christ. Maybe they put him on the stand and just say, man, tell me what you believe in Jesus Christ. Tell me what what is this thing, this Christian faith? Tell me what is Christianity? And Titus maybe stood up in front of the elders before the council and just said, here's my faith. This is what I believe. This is the gospel, the good news. And they found out that he is resting in God's perfect work. Is Jesus enough? Or does Titus need something else in order to be accepted by God? Does he need something even physically done to him to be accepted by God? Is Jesus enough? See, everything, my friends, is riding on this answer. The question is for you. Is Jesus enough? Do you need anything else to be accepted by God? The answer is Okay, it's not a rhetorical question. The answer is no. You don't need anything else. The other example is actually a little bit more subtle. So first example was Titus. But if you look carefully, you're going to see that in Jerusalem you have Peter. Right? He's the disciple of Jesus who spent three years with the Lord. Jesus called him the rock and he appointed him to to feed the sheep. Peter preached a sermon on on, uh, one day. What was that day? Do you remember? He preached a sermon. Holy Spirit. Pentecost. He he preached a sermon. And on that day, 3,000 people responded and were added to the church. That, that's your first example of a mega church. And that'd be chaos in one day. And then you have James and John, other key leaders in the Bible, and they, they have spent all kinds of time with Jesus. So on, on the other hand, you have Paul, who, who met Jesus only once had almost no contact with the Jerusalem church and who in fact started off his career totally opposing the church, wanting to destroy it. And then there's this question that's kind of posed in there. In verse 6, is there, is there any kind of ranking before God? And there is no doubt that Peter, James, and John had some kind of prestige and status. After all, they had walked with Jesus. They knew Jesus. They saw him crucified. They saw that he had died, that he was buried. And then they met him when? Face to face at the resurrection. Not only that, they saw him when he ascended. Wow. 
put that on your Christian resume, you are going to have some prestige. People are going to notice. But look what Paul says in verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Paul is reminding us that when we stand before God, nothing apart from Jesus matters. Friends, it's true with me too. You and I on that last day are going to stand side by side. And just because I have been a pastor of a church and you maybe have not been a pastor of a church, God shows no partiality. The only thing that matters on that day is Jesus. Our rank, our status, our reputation, our accomplishments don't do anything for us. The only thing that that we have that impresses God whatsoever is that we are in Christ Jesus. That His Son's blood and righteousness covers us. We are coded in Jesus Christ. With God, there is no partiality. The gospel, and the gospel alone, is the grounds of our acceptance before God. Nothing else matters. Hear that again. The gospel is the grounds for our acceptance with God. Nothing else matters. And Paul was able to raise the issue with the leaders in Jerusalem. And the result is that they were unified around the gospel and they decided to hold that in common. And now Paul is writing this letter to make sure that the Galatians know that they do not need to add anything other than Jesus to be accepted by God. It's a message that is is vitally important for us as well. Would it surprise you if I told you that this is an important message for us to really get into our DNA? This strange talk about circumcision. As I said, I doubt that anybody has probably cross-stitched this into anything, especially like verses like this. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. That's not something that you put on a coffee cup or hang above your mantle. Oh, great. Oh, I love your circumcision cross stitch. That's kind of awkward. That's kind of weird. But we're content, every one of us is continually tempted to believe that we need Jesus plus something else to be accepted by God. Last year, because there's times that I struggle with anxiety, I don't know if anybody else does, I read this really good book by this title, The Good News for Anxious Christians. Ten Practical Things You Don't Have to Do. Written by a guy named Philip Carey. Some of you might be finding yourself already on your Amazon account saying, I need to order this. Good news for anxious Christians. I really encourage you, get this book. It's a good read. You know, the the author, Philip Carey, talks about the anxiety that many of us feel. Here it is. Go ahead, Alex. Sometimes a Christian life can can get to be like that. 
Trying to live like Christians just seems to add one more layer of anxiety to our life. We have our work, our families, our friends to worry about. And then on top of that, we worry about getting our Christian lives right. Anybody else feel that? Am I getting this right? Am I knocking it out of the park? I stay up at night kind of ruminating on it and, you know, thinking through it. Well, how should I raise my kids? What should I do? And all of a sudden you find yourself growing anxious. Am I getting this Christian thing right? He goes on. And if being a good Christian is at the center of our lives, then this worry can settle into the depths of our heart and turn, in, turn everything we do into something to be anxious about. I know what he's talking about. Maybe it's because of my position. I feel like I got eyes watching me. And I do, I know. I got a lot of eyes watching me. And they're watching me personally as a pastor, me as a Christian. They're watching me as a father, me as a husband, especially as a pastor who is a a father and a pastor who's a husband is, is he getting this right? And I'm watch, having these eyes watch me and I feel this anxiousness that I got to get it right because I have so many people who are, who are watching me and they, they want to make sure that they get it right. So I've got to get it right. And the anxiety just keeps on ratcheting up another level and it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And so ultimately I feel like I have lost my freedom. I found myself to become a slave again. And I hear this from some of you as well. You feel like, am I getting this Christian life right? Am I doing it wrong? We have this ongoing sense that maybe in some way that we are a disappointment to God. Maybe I'm just not measuring up. I have this sense that I have to come, I come to Jesus and he gives me eternal life and, and then Jesus kind of sets me off down this path and says, now go make something of yourself, kid. And ever since that point, when Jesus kind of pushes us out of the nest, God has been watching and shaking his head in disappointment. Again? Again, kid? Some may even have this idea that one day God will accept them into heaven, but only because he had to. He won't be happy about it because he's pretty disappointed by what they've, they've done with their lives. All right, you're clothed in Jesus, but do you remember that one day in August? Remember that thing that you did? The stuff that you what? And Philip Carey goes on to tell us what the problem is. It's not, that, it's not that we're not trying hard enough. It's not that we have to do better. The problem, my friends, is theological. He says this. It's, a bad, it's about bad theology. The kind of theology that when it's preached and taught and made part of our lives makes us worried and miserable. The good news 
is it's not in the Bible and you don't have to believe it. What the gospel of Christ does is gives us Christ and that's enough. I love that. I could just stop the quote right there. That's enough. But he goes on to say, we can let everything else be what it is. Hard work, worthwhile work, works of love and heartaches that all come with all of that. And we can let our feelings be what they are, whatever that may be. What matters is Jesus Christ. And the gospel tells us that all that tells us that all is well on that score. That we are our beloveds and he is ours. The problem is, my friends, is that many of us are trying to add something to Jesus in order to be accepted. And we may even be adding more to Jesus to be accepted by each other. Which is equally damning and life-sucking. If I just do this, maybe they'll think I'm a better Christian or I'm doing this. And it's Jesus plus something and it communicates something terrible to our friends and our family and our church members and our children. If you just behave this way, you're going to be accepted by me and by God. Is that what it's about? What does this do? It kills us. It makes us anxious. It robs us of our freedom. And it turns us back into slaves, performance slaves. Whenever we look to anything other than Jesus for our acceptance before God, we have lost the grip on the gospel, and we believed a lie. And it's not an obscure, just an obscure problem that Paul faced hundreds of years ago. This is a problem that each and every one of us face every day. I, I, I've told you before, I've got this man crush on a guy named uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, he was a, a pastor in London uh, last century. And people would, and doc, just so you know, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones struggled with depression and anxiety. And people would come to him with their problems. And he was very good at just getting to the heart of their problems. And sometimes he would ask them this question. How do you know that you are a Christian? This might be a good question to ask in your missional community. How do you know you are a Christian? Do you know what they would answer many times? I'm trying. And of course, for the doctor, it would send off all kinds of alarms off in his head. What they were saying is, I think I'm a Christian because of Jesus plus my efforts. I'm trying. They were trusting in something else other than the finished and perfect work of Jesus for their salvation. They were making the very same mistakes that were found in this passage. John Gertzner said this, There is nothing that separates us from God more than our damnable good works. Let me say it one more time. There's nothing that separates us from God more than our damnable good works. 
So when we put our faith in our good works, hoping that this is going to buy some acceptance with God, what does it ultimately do? It separates us. The famous preacher George Whitfield <coughs> said, before you can speak peace in your heart, you must not only be made sick of your original and actual sin, but you must be made sick of your own righteousness, of all your duties and your performances. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol taken out of your heart. The pride of our heart cannot let us submit to the righteousness of Christ. God, I am good enough. I am working hard enough. Would you just accept me and my pride of how good I am? And God goes, that's the separating piece. I want none of it. The only thing that makes you acceptable before me is Christ's work in you. So a little Joel Olstein for you. A little odd story. It's goofy. Theologically, biblically, inaccurate. But I think you'll get the point. A man was standing at the gates of heaven. Who did he meet? St. Peter. And uh, to the man's utter shock, because he was probably a good reformed guy, he said, uh, Peter said to him, you have earned a thousand, you have to earn a thousand points to be admitted into heaven. What have you done to earn your points? The man was a little disheveled at that point, thinking, man, I thought it was by grace alone. Okay, well, let me start thinking. All right, I was raised in a Christian home and I've always been part of a church. Check. I've, I've had Sunday school attendance pens that go down to the floor. I went to a Christian college and a graduate school and have probably led hundreds of people to Christ. I am now an elder in my church and I'm quite supportive of what the people of God do. I have three children, two boys and a girl. My oldest boy is a pastor in a church and the, the younger is a staff person in a ministry to the poor. Badge, 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 badge. My daughter and her husband are missionaries. I have always tithed and I am now giving over 30% of my income to God's work. I am a bank executive and I work with the poor in our city trying to get low income mortgages. How am I doing so far? He asked St. Peter. That's one point. What else have you done? Good Lord, have mercy. The man said in frustration, that's it. Welcome home. Do you get it? You are never going to be able to achieve God's approval by trusting anything else but what Jesus Christ has done for you. I don't care what kind of, that you've been a part of a Christian family, a church all your life. I don't care where you have served. I don't care anything else. Your good works are damnable things that separate you from God. The most important thing is, do you trust in Christ alone? All that's needed is Jesus. And that is enough. 
That is enough. And at the cross, Jesus did everything that was ever needed in order to make us right with God. Jesus is enough. Depending on Jesus plus something else is a lie that kills and robs us of the truth of the gospel. So two last questions for us. Here's the first one. When you look at other people, how do you see them? The problem is that some in the church were looking at the Gentiles and who believed that G, who believed in Jesus. These Gentiles, man, they had faith in Jesus, but they hadn't been circumcised. And the church saw them as deficient. It's the same problem that we face today when we look at someone who has trusted in Jesus Christ but looks and acts differently than we do. We have a tendency to to judge on external factors or personal preferences, right? The church is great with that. External factors or personal preferences when in reality, Jesus is enough. There is no favoritism with God. Do you get that? That the, the newest Christian with, with tattoos, nicotine stains, and says all the wrong stuff at all the wrong times, that person stands right next to the most mature believer who is a pillar in the church. Before God, there is no difference. They are both clothed in Christ's righteousness. The grounds of their acceptance is Christ alone. And depending on anything else is absolutely deadly. So, my friends, when you look at people who are new to the faith or people who are in the process of examining this thing called Christianity, faith in Christ, how do you look at them? And how do you communicate what this faith in Christ is about? It's not, come to Jesus, clean up your act a bit, and then you'll be accepted. No, come to Jesus. I'll I'll take you with all your messiness. I'll take you with smelling like smoke. You come in here with your eyes a little hazy because you, you took a hit of pot before you came in. Welcome. Jesus is gonna clean you up. He's gonna change and transform you. But I'm not adding to the gospel. Jesus is going to deeply change your life. Yes, there is obedience, right? There is obedience. But your obedience never, ever saves you. And then there's this other question. And this is really where it gets personal. Are you sick of your damnable good works? Are you personally sick and tired of your circus act trying to gain the applause of God only to find yourself performing and back in slavery? Have you gotten rid of that last idol to be taken out of your heart, which is the idol of your own self-righteousness? 
Have you realized that God does not accept you based on how well you are doing, but he accepts you purely on the basis of Jesus Christ and what he has done? Friends, it is critical for us as a community if we want to have authentic, vulnerable, real lives that are filled with joy, that we realize that we have been set free. We're, we're going to sing that. It's a brand new song that was introduced last week. We sang it just before um, the peace of Christ was passed. I am free. I am free. You've delivered me. You've delivered me. We're, we're going to sing that again because we have got to understand that Jesus plus nothing else <coughs> Nothing else is what the gospel is. Jesus plus anything else is just slavery, my friends, and it will kill you. In your missional communities this week, I encourage you to come and say, here's some ways that I have added to the gospel. Here are ways that I have sucked myself joyless and I've become a slave again. Here are my damnable good works. And here's how it's affecting my relationships. Here's how it's affecting my marriage. Here's how it's affecting my parenting. Here's how it's affecting my evangelism my workplace. Be vulnerable. And then believe again the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.